we are in Matthew chapter 10. We're going to begin at verse 5. If you're not familiar with the, the layout of the Bible, Matthew's in the New Testament, kind of the second half of the big book. And um, Matthew is one of the gospel accounts, the stories of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're, we've been looking at the gospel of Matthew for some time now, and we are in chapter 10. Um, we're going to begin looking at verse 5. And um, in the bulletin and on the screen, I have it that we're going to go from 5 to 33. And as I was looking at this passage, I realized, man, there is so much to talk about that I'm not going to be able to adequately talk about the whole thing. So this morning, we're just going to look at verses 5 through 15. Um, and then if you're interested in what comes after, uh, we want you to come back um, in two weeks, and I'll pick up in verse 16. Um, next week, a friend is going to be preaching for me instead. Uh, but come back two weeks from now, and we'll pick up in 16. But today, we're looking at Matthew 5, uh, sorry, Matthew 10, verses 5 through 15. These are the tw these 12, that's the disciples, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given us your word and that your word points us to truth and life in Christ. I pray, Spirit of God, would you speak through me and would you speak to all of our hearts? Would you convict us of sin? Would you humble us? Would you shape us into conformity into Christ? Uh, that is what you are able to do right now. Uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, it's Super Bowl Sunday, and I almost thought I wouldn't reference it, but uh, I'm excited for the commercials, and in particular, uh, Progressive Insurance has good commercials. And Peter always reminds us of those. He works there. And one of the favorite kind of uh, a category of progressive commercials is the Dr. Rick commercials. You know, the kind of the therapist who uh, saves you from turning into your parents. Um, you know, I think as we're all kind of adulting and becoming parents ourselves, we are becoming a lot like our own parents. And I found myself this week realizing 
uh, just how similar I am to my dad in particular. Because I realize consciously for the first time that I have a stack, a pile of appliance user manuals that I can now go and reference to troubleshoot what's wrong with my appliance. I didn't think I'd ever become like that. That's like my dad. But that happened just this week. Our dishwasher wasn't working, and the lights were blinking, and I had to go find the user manual, figure out why I was doing that, what was wrong, and then fix it. Uh, user manuals are important. They help us show how a certain thing is su supposed to function. Uh, and if something's wrong, they kind of tell us what might be wrong and how to fix it. They give us the manufacturer's design for the appliance's proper use. Um, Chapter 10 of the Gospel of Matthew, in many ways, is a user manual for how Jesus wants us, his disciples, to be on mission. Like, there's, there's plenty of books written about how to do missions, whether it's cross-cultural, international missions, or inner-city kind of missions, or how to love your neighbors. I mean, there are just countless books. On my office bookshelf, I think the most popular book theme that I have is on the mission of the church. Um, but Matthew chapter 10, and its parallels in Luke and, and Mark, this is Jesus's user manual that he gives to his church about how to do the mission. Uh, in particular, this is talking about the 12 going to Galilee, but even later in the chapter, he begins talking about being dragged before Gentile rulers and kings. And so even Jesus is foreseeing this mission is, is far beyond just Galilee. It's really going to extend to the whole world. And in Luke, he doesn't just send 12, he sends out 70, which is kind of this representative number for the whole total of Christ's disciples. And so we talked last week about how Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. And now he's doing just that. He is sending his disciples to go on mission. And we're going to learn about that today and for the next couple weeks. Um, in particular, in these 10 verses, I want you to see the three kind of fundamental things that is asked of us as we go on mission. So if you're taking notes or you want to follow along mentally where we're going, these are the three things that Jesus says we are to do as disciples on mission. First, we are to proclaim the kingdom. Second, we are to demonstrate the kingdom. And then third, we are to expose people to the kingdom. We are to proclaim the kingdom, demonstrate the kingdom, and expose people to the kingdom. Let's look at the passage and we'll unpack that. So first, we are to proclaim the kingdom. Jesus sends out his disciples and in verse 7 of this passage, tells them what they are to go and do. He says, as you go, proclaim, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what they are to go and proclaim. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Um, that might be interesting for you and for me, 
Because often when we think about going on mission or the mission that Jesus sends us out to, and, and I'll often talk about this at church, is that we are to go and share the gospel, right? Um, why does Jesus say, go and proclaim the kingdom? And this isn't just the disciples that are to do this. This is actually Jesus' own message. If you remember back in Matthew chapter 4, when Jesus begins his public ministry, that's the very thing Jesus himself says. He comes into the region of Galilee after being tempted into the wilderness, and he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the very same message that Jesus preached. And so we are to go and preach the same message. But again, it's surprising because aren't we supposed to go and preach the gospel? Like, think about when you maybe heard someone share about Jesus for the first time or, or, or many times. Maybe you were having coffee with someone in college. Uh, maybe as you were a kid, you heard about it in church. Uh, maybe it was a friend or a coworker shared the gospel with you for the first time. I'm sure that this isn't how it went. I'm sure that it didn't go like this. Hey, Jeremy, you know, I just, I, I just really want you to know. And this is because I love you and I care for you. I just really want you to know the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like, that's kind of strange. Like, I, how would you respond to that? That doesn't make any sense. No, we're, we're trained to go and share the gospel. I mean, if you were with us last summer, we did the workshop for many weeks about how to share the gospel. Well, I think that maybe these two things aren't totally unrelated. In fact, the word gospel itself means good news. So to share the gospel is to share good news. It is to share the good news, which is to say it's proclaiming the news of an event an event that changes the course of history. And that's what the word gospel means, a proclamation of an event that changes people's lives. And Jesus didn't come up with the idea of the gospel. The writers of the New Testament didn't come up with the idea of the gospel. That's a, a word that was already in use long before Jesus. In fact, uh, decades before Jesus, on um, Caesar Augustus's birthday, in the city of Rome, the officials uh, hung up this giant placard, this huge inscription, and, and it cataloged kind of the life of Caesar Augustus, their, you know, their great emperor and ruler. It, it, it told them how Caesar came into power and defeated the enemies of Rome and how he established peace and prosperity for the people. And it, it talked about how he was a great ruler and it talked about how he died and how now they believed he was among the stars. And this great placard begins like this. This is the beginning of the gospel of Caesar Augustus. That's exactly how our gospels begin. It is a declaration, a proclamation of a historical event that changes the lives of people. And so Jesus says, as you go, as I send you, you are to go and proclaim the news of a historical event that in me, I am bringing about the kingdom of God. What does that mean? 
What does it mean that in Jesus, the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, I think that message presupposes that there is a king, and that king has a kingdom, and that within that kingdom there are subjects, and that king rules over that kingdom with order and justice, and that the subjects are called to live in obedience to that king and thrive and prosper in his kingdom. For the first century audience hearing this message, they would have understood exactly what was being talked about. And the whole story that they believed, the whole story that, that this book tells us, the story of the world is just that. That in the beginning there was a king, and the king created his kingdom. And he ruled over his kingdom and created subjects to live in it with him. And he gave them his law, his rules, and said, if you obey me, if you are my people and listen to my voice, then you will thrive in my kingdom. And that's the whole story of creation, of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. But we know that that perfect rule of the kingdom did not last long. For Adam and Eve heard the voice of their king, but then they heard the voice of the enemy, and they believed Satan, and they were tempted away from obedience to God. And in reality, what that was, was Satan saying, do you really like it that God is your king, or would you rather be the ruler of your life? And that was simply what it was. Do you want to take charge and decide for yourself what's right and wrong? Do you want to decide what's good and bad, what's true and beautiful for yourself? Or are you going to believe what God says? Well, they wanted to be kings. And they wanted to be queens. And so they disobeyed. And that's what sin is. Sin is, is this act of rebellion against our king. It's an act that says, I am king, I am queen of my life, not you. And for the rest of human history, the effects of that have been spilling out over and over, even to today. Where our default posture in life is to say, God, I do not want to obey you as my king. In fact, I am the true king of my life. And so I'm going to wake up and decide what my life is going to look like. I'm going to wake up every day and decide who I am, not what you tell me I am. I'm going to wake up and decide I'm going to determine what I do with my life, how I spend my time, how I spend my money, how I engage in relationships, what I do. That's my decision. And that is rebellion against God. And so, throughout the Old Testament, there was this longing, this hope, this recognition that because mankind has usurped the throne of creation, that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. That relationships are broken. That our sense of self is marred. That the whole of creation is groaning under the curse of our sin. And so there was this longing, 
We need the true king to return and establish his kingdom again. That was what they were hoping for. And so Jesus comes on the scene and says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is now here. The thing you've been longing for, you can have in me. The thing that you are longing for is now available. Now repent. And, and that, all that word means is to say, I turn away from the old way of living. And I pledge my loyalty to the new king. That's what repentance is. It's to say, I used to think of myself as the king of my life, and I let go of that. And I submit myself and pay homage now to the true and proper king of the world. Friends, that is the message of the gospel that we proclaim to the world. The king has come. He has won the victory over sin. And he invites all of us to repent of our former lordship to ourselves and to say, I pledge my loyalty to you. Friends, we are to go out and proclaim the kingdom and invite people in. All right, second, we are to go and demonstrate the kingdom. Not just proclaim the kingdom, but demonstrate the kingdom. Jesus continues after verse 7 and verse 8. He says, not only are you to go and proclaim the kingdom, but he says, you are to go and what? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. Now, if you've been with us the last couple weeks, in chapters 8 and 9, these are exactly the things that Jesus has been doing. He touched the leper who was untouchable and cleansed him. He touched the woman who was sick for 12 years and healed her. He went to the little girl who was dead and he rose her back to life. And then he cast out the demons that were oppressing the people. These are the very things that Jesus has been doing and now he says, you are to go and do likewise. And we said this before, that Jesus wasn't just healing for the sake of healing. No, he was demonstrating the reality that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Because th that kingdom was a promise of, of restoration and of joy. That there wasn't going to be mourning or tears or sadness or disease or decay. And he was showing in time, here and now, that kingdom is available. Let me demonstrate it for you. I will heal you. I will touch you and cure you. I will raise you from the dead. And Jesus says, you are to go and demonstrate the reality of the kingdom too. What does that mean? It means that we are to go into parts of the world that are hurting and bring healing. We are to enter into relationships and systems that are broken. And we are to work towards restoration and reconciliation. We are to go towards disease and decay and death, physical and metaphorical, 
and we are to bear witness to the power of the new life that the kingdom brings. I mean, I, I was just driving down Mayfield Road, and I saw that BW3s is closed. And, and then I went a little bit further, and there was another shop that was closed, and then another and another. And that's a very tangible description of that things in this world are moving towards death and brokenness and abandonment. And it's, it's natural of us to say, man, our community is going downhill. I think it's about time that I get out of here. But Jesus says you are to go not only proclaim the message of the kingdom, but to demonstrate the restoration and joy that the kingdom of God brings. Now, I'm not sure that that necessarily means that we need to revive BW3s, but I think that means that we have to have a posture that says, where there is brokenness, I need to head towards it. Because I need to demonstrate there that the kingdom of God is here. The gospel is a message we proclaim. No doubt about that. But it is a message about a kingdom that has real world here and now effects on the created order. This should not surprise us. I mean, I just mentioned, this is exactly what Jesus has been doing. And he gives us the authority to go and do likewise. That's the Great Commission. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him, and then he commissions us to go. He says, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. So we go with that same mission in mind to proclaim the kingdom and to demonstrate the kingdom. We go out as an extension of the mission of Jesus. I don't think that it's wrong for me to say that proclamation and demonstration, the preaching of the gospel, and then the acts of mercy that accompany it, they are distinct, but they are inseparable parts of the mission of the church. Now, I'm going to give you three reasons why I think that's true. Acts of mercy, acts of compassion, they can become bridges to that gospel. They can become bridges to proclaiming the gospel. Hear, hear the story. Stephen Rand, who was the um, prayer and campaign director of this nonprofit um, called Tear Fund, he describes visiting the country of Ethiopia shortly after, in 1890, or 1984, there was a famine. And while he was there, he met this guy, Daniel, who was a church leader, um, who had a vision for seeing his community transformed by the kingdom of God. And the church there was called the Kale Hewitt Church. Um, they were able to persuade the government to give them this barren patch of land. And Daniel hoped, in order to, to work with the local police, to reforest that land to bless the community. Um, so he visited in 1984, and then three years later, Rand came back to check on the progress. And at first, they were six-inch seedlings of those trees. Now they had grown to way over 30 feet tall. And, and the land was productive once again. It was um, producing resources for the community. And the government was so impressed that they had given 
the church another pot of land to keep doing this work. But um, Daniel explained to Rand um, that there was another dimension of this transformation process. He says this, that land that we were in, it was situated largely in a Muslim area of the country, hostile to the Christian church. And missionaries had been sent to preach for over 20 years without any kind of noticeable effect. But now the local people were puzzled that the church had come to work there, providing them with food in exchange for their labor and creating an oasis of fruitfulness where there had previously been only desert. It had made them ask the question, why? And Daniel had been only way too eager and ready to tell them that it was because of God's love for them, a love that could not only see the landscape transformed, but a love that could transform their lives as well. And so as a result, many of these Muslims made a commitment to Christ and the church was established. Planting trees was used to preach the gospel. So our, our acts of mercy, they become bridges to proclamation. Not only are they bridges, though, I would argue that they are a necessary response to the proclamation of the gospel. If, if we think about it, if we go out and proclaim the good news of the kingdom and people pledge their loyalty to Christ, they will become part of the church, but they will bring with them their hurt and their pain and their brokenness and the issues that they carry with them. And now the church has the opportunity to show mercy. Like it is the necessary aspect of it. And finally, I would say that acts of mercy are the evidence of evangelism. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, after talking about how we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. We have things in front of us that God has prepared us to do. Acts of mercy, acts of compassion, a demonstration of the reality of the kingdom that God has prepared for you to do. And that was the, the result of your salvation. You were saved in order to go and bring about this demonstration of the kingdom of God. I love how Tim Keller uh, says about this uniqueness, this specificity, that each one of us was designed for this. He says, there are some needs that only you can see. There are some hands that only you can hold. There are some people that only you can reach. Each one of us is called not only to go and proclaim that kingdom, but to demonstrate its reality. Who is it in your life? How has God called you there? All right, third and finally, we're not only to proclaim the kingdom and demonstrate the kingdom, we are to expose people to the kingdom. Here's what I mean. 
Jesus says, you're to go. Here's what you're supposed to say. Here's what you're supposed to do. Now he says where you're supposed to do it. Look at verse 11. He says, and as you go, whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And as you enter the house, greet it. What Jesus is saying is, the context in which you proclaim the kingdom and demonstrate the kingdom is going to be in the context of going from house to house, home to home, engaging in relationships with people. And that's what he's saying. You're going to go, you're going to find a house, and you're going to live with them and stay there with them. And as they see you, as they hear you, as they listen to you, you will proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom to them. That was the method of Jesus, right? He went from village to village and town to town. He had no place to lay his head, he tells us. Rather, people welcomed him into their lives. And the disciples and we are instructed to do the same thing, to be obedient to the mission, to expose people to the kingdom in the context of hospitality. And that's what hospitality is. It's loving the stranger in our lives. It's welcoming them into our lives. It's entering into their lives. And in the context of that relationship, we are to proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom. Look, it shouldn't surprise us that this is how we're supposed to do it. Jesus says the greatest commandments are that we are to love God and love our neighbors. Hospitality is simply loving our neighbors put into practice. Now, hospitality is the art of building relationships with our neighbors. And that's exactly what Jesus calls us to do, to establish these relationships with those around us. And in the context of those relationships, proclaim and demonstrate the kingdom of God. All right, real briefly, I want to show, share with you story of a lady, Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe you've heard her story before. Um, Rosaria uh, was, she used to be a, um, a college university professor of women's studies. And um, she was a big advocate of kind of the, the LGBT um, uh, causes in, in government and in her community on campus. She was a lesbian herself in a committed monogamous relationship. And she was writing these articles for the campus paper, um, in particular, one article about how um, purity culture in the church uh, kind of disrupted and corrupted views of sexuality. She really did not like the church. She didn't like Christians at all. She was fairly anti-Christ. She didn't like engaging with them at all. And as she was writing this article, she actually received a letter in response from a guy, uh, Pastor Ken. And in Pastor Ken's letter, um, he, he responded um, gently and kindly, invited her to keep looking for answers. Um, and in fact, after a few correspondence, he invited her over to have dinner uh, with him and his wife. And she was very hesitant at first, but realized this was the first Christian experience with someone that she didn't feel repulsed by, um, that he was actually being gentle towards her and respectful. And so she decides to go and have dinner 
with Ken and Floyd. And this is how she records what happened that night. She's, she's sitting in her car, uh, nervous to get out and knock on the door. And she writes this, nothing about that night unfolded according to my confident script I had been running in my head. Nothing happened in the way I expected it to. Not that night or the years after or the hundreds of meals or the long nights of psalm singing and prayer as other believers from the church and university walked through that door of this house as if no door was even there. Nothing prepared me for this openness and truth. Nothing prepared me for the unstoppable gospel and for the love of Jesus made manifest by the daily practices of hospitality undertaken in this one simple Christian home. This Christian home became my two-year refuge and my way station. Long before I ever walked through the doors of the church, that Smith family home was the place where I wrestled with the Bible wrestled with the reality that Jesus is who he says he is, and eventually came face to face with him on the glittering knife's edge of my choice sin. She talks about how it was the hospitality of this man and woman that welcomed her in to their lives. And it was through seeing them in their family how they interacted with one another, how they interacted with their neighbors, how they interacted with everyone who came. It convinced her that maybe there's something to this that I've previously rejected. She says, Ken and his wife, Floyd, entered into my world. They became friends with my friends. Friends, that's hospitality. It's not just opening up your door for them. It's saying, I love you and want to care about you and get involved in your life too. She goes on to say, radically ordinary hospitality is this. It is using your Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors part of the family of God. When we use our Christian homes in a way that are open, we make transparent to a watching world what Christ is doing with our bodies, with our families, with the whole world. When we daily gather with the family of God in these organic and open and communal ways, and when we invite those who do not yet know Christ to enter, we accompany one another in suffering. We bear one another's burdens. We show a watching world what servant prayer sounds like. It sounds like talking to God, knowing that we are through the merits of Christ, on good terms with him, and that our daily needs are actually his concern towards us. When our Christian homes are open, our neighbors watch us struggle with our own sins, both the sins of our doing and the sin nature with which we wage daily combat. Friends, when we open up our homes, that is the perfect place to proclaim that the kingdom is here and to demonstrate through acts of mercy and love and service that the kingdom is here. Friends, I hope that as a church, as families, as individuals, we would take seriously this call to expose our neighbors to the kingdom. It's not a bait and switch. We're not trying to manipulate. We're trying to say, 
the king is here. And he offers redemption and restoration. He invites every one of us to go of that old life and come and pledge your loyalty to him. Let's pray.